You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employer's respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. Hey, Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was so cool. I think you're so talented. Social media is only positive with Zigazoo, the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. In Zigazoo, all community members are verified kids just like yours, and all content is fully human moderated. Try out Zigazoo this spring break. Download the Zigazoo app today. Conair is spreading love and celebrating women, not just on International Women's Day, but every day with Conair Girl Bomb. Girlbomb is their new line of powerful hair removal tools made just for us. Yeah. Whether it's the silky smooth skin or the empowering confidence boost you get, Conair Girlbomb is here to amp up those positive vibes with some self-care. So to all the beautiful women out there, keep shining, keep being you, and treat yourself to some Conair Girlbomb magic. You deserve it. Available at Walgreens. Ready to celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's and iHeart present Women Take the Mic, sharing empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&M's and spread some positivity. From breaking glass ceilings to dominating in sports and entertainment, women truly are unstoppable. Family Secrets is a production of iHeartRadio. Hi, Family Secrets listeners. It's Danny here to share a bit of exciting news with you before today's episode. We just found out that our podcast is a nominee for the Webby People's Voice Award in the category of Best Series. This is a huge honor, and honestly, it puts a spring in my step as I walk alone each day down into my basement to record my conversations with my amazing guests. Podcasts can be a bit like the sound of a tree falling in a forest. You know, is anyone listening? Does it really exist? So here's the thing. This is the People's Voice Award, so you get to vote. It would mean so much if you'd go to vote.webbyawards.com and cast your vote for Family Secrets. Thank you so much for hearing me out. I love you guys. Now, on with today's episode. I had the America of my American father. He anointed our lawn with Scott's Turf Builder. He bought us frozen Cokes on the boardwalk at Rehoboth Beach. He brought home a late model Ford Mustang, a stablemate for our Ford Fairlane wagon, and lavished care on both. He flew the flag each Memorial Day and Fourth of July, flaunting his citizenship so enthusiastically that I never believed he spoke with an accent. Even his friends insisted he did. The 50s gave Nico the perfect background in which to recede, to take on the protective coloring of red, white, and blue, to get on with the anesthetizing business of dissolving into the lonely crowd. By the mid-60s, he was raising three kids in a world where the Russian front had become a laugh line on Hogan's Heroes. I watched my father grow his shell hard and tuck his head in. 
I'm not sure it's a word, but he turtled. That's Alexander Wolfe, longtime writer for Sports Illustrated and author of the memoir End Papers. Alex's story, as is true of so many stories we tell on Family Secrets, begins many years before he's born. This is a multi-generational journey of both privilege, survival, investigation, and reckoning. What is our legacy made of? How responsible are we for the lives lived by generations before us? Alex's story begins with his grandfather, Kurt Wolf, one of the most esteemed literary figures of his time. I'm Danny Shapiro, and this is Family Secrets. The secrets that are kept from us, the secrets we keep from others, and the secrets we keep from ourselves. My grandfather was born in 1887 in Bonn, the Rhineland. His father was a musician, taught at the university there, taught music, choir master, composer, just completely subsumed by music. And on his mother's side, my grandfather's mother's side, she was Jewish and came from a long line of very prosperous Rhineland Jews, were great collectors of books and art. So between the music and the art and the books, he was just steeped in this bildung, this cultivating the self through culture. And it was no real surprise, I suppose, that as soon as he hit 23, he was founding a publishing house. Um, he'd begun collecting books as a teenager, really valuable books, some incunabula, really early valuable ones, and had an interest in literature too. He'd gone off to, to study, it seemed to have been the custom of the time to migrate from campus to campus around Germany. He studied on four different campuses around the country, studying literature. So books and, and literature were going to be his destiny, however it came to be. Now, my dad is born in 1921, after World War I, and it's difficult to overstate how much Germany was convulsed by the war and the aftermath. So by being born into 1921, not only did it destine him to be part of that cohort of males who would be sent off to war, Hitler's war, but it also meant that his childhood would be colored by the Weimar hyperinflation. Now, he did have the good fortune of being born into a family it was very prosperous, not just because of, of his father, Court's wealth, family wealth, but also because Court had married uh, an heiress named Elizabeth Merck, the Merck Pharmaceutical and Chemical Company, known in the States as Merck, but originally from Germany. Alex's father, Nico, is raised along with his sister Maria in Munich in a very comfortable life. They're taken care of by nannies and really not a part of the life and social world of their parents. So fast forward, light years later, to when Alex and his siblings are growing up in 1950s post-war suburban America. The whole scene is very Ozzy and Harriet. Hands-on parenting, dad has a corporate job, mom stays home. And the past, the past is solidly where it belongs, in the past. But here's the thing, a lot of history went down in those couple of decades before 1950s America. For a German family with some Jewish roots, that history was fraught and complicated 
and not so easily erased. Well, Kurt was Jewish to the extent that the Nazis would have declared him Jewish, but he wasn't strictly speaking Jewish in that his mom and her parents had been baptized Christian, and his father was Christian. Indeed, he was the choir master at a Lutheran church in Bonn. So there was a great deal, particularly among the upper classes, of this crawling to the cross, as Heinrich Heine derisively put it. If you were that invested in German culture and there was this roadblock to being a full participant in it, it was very tempting in 19th century Germany to abandon Judaism and fully embrace Germany and Germanism in all these ways. And it was the same way that Felix Mendelssohn had uh, abandoned Judaism. The Nazis, of course, regarded him as Jewish and always would, but he not only became a Protestant, but he wrote the famous Reformation Symphony celebrating it. Um, so it was very tricky. The, the cultural inheritance, I'd say, that my grandfather had was very heavily inflected with Judaism. Um, his mother, I think, had more than anything to do with his interest in literature. His father was a musician, but because he composed and he conducted and played, his head was always somewhere else. But the inculcation of literature and stories and so forth came from my grandfather's mother. And of course, her being steeped in Bildung was the result of these very prosperous Jewish ancestors of hers. I mean, one of the things that's so interesting to me, and I think that listeners will find really interesting, is this idea that there was this cultural choices and ultimately heritage that Nazis would not have looked at as, oh, well, this is now someone who is Aryan, who is one of us, because they've been baptized or because they've made the choice to fully adopt our culture. Yeah, the, to the Nazis, Judaism was a racial construct, and there's no way one can simply convert one's way out of being Jewish. And the Nuremberg Laws in the mid-30s, when they were enacted, were an attempt to somehow sort this out, and my father and his sister were very lucky to fall on the more favorable side of that verdict. While not considered part of the German race and nation, were not targeted for elimination. By the time of the Nuremberg Laws, my grandfather had already left Germany. He had, he had seen the tea leaves and read them and was uh, on the lamb in Italy and southern France with a German passport. He was ultimately unable to renew, but then was quite happy to just abandon Germany. But in abandoning Germany, he's abandoning his his children. It should be mentioned, too, that by that point, your grandfather was no longer married to your grandmother and was with another woman who, who he would um, later go on to marry, who was also not Jewish. Is that correct? That's exactly right, yes. By 1930, Kurt and his soon-to-be new wife are essentially on the run, ending up in southern France, Italy, and North Africa while his children, Nico and Maria, remain with their mother. Kurt had spent the 1920s becoming a well-known literary figure in Europe as a publisher of Franz Kafka, Heinrich Mann, brother of Thomas Mann, and Karl Kraus, a Viennese cultural critic. These were artists and thinkers who were pushing the envelope. The new and exciting is what animates Kurt. But by the early 1930s, with the advent of Hitler in Germany, the new and exciting, the pushing of the envelope, and any whiff of Jewishness were all deeply dangerous. Kurt Wolf is restless, stymied. 
he grows tired of life in exile and decides to attempt a return to Berlin. He's been in this funk. He's desperate for something to engage him. He wants it to be in the cultural sphere. And he understands that there's an opening in the foreign ministry for some cultural attache position. So he heads to Berlin in late 1932, hoping to interview for this job. And he checks in with friends and some writers and ultimately interviews for it. But then by January and February of 1933, it's clear that Hitler is getting enough of a toehold that there's no way he, with his record of having published all these degenerate writers, um, to say nothing of his being half Jewish, he would not be a candidate for this job. And it was literally within the 48 hours after the Reichstag burns that he and Helen flee. They go first to London where they get married and then uh, launch into this what would be six or seven or eight years of exile before they finally land in the U.S. In your book, you have this really lovely meditation about like it's sort of a, an inquiry, really, a question of what makes one know when it's time, you know, like when it's time to get out. In Holocaust literature in particular, I'm thinking about the people who just simply didn't believe that it could happen there or it could happen to them or that their privilege or their position would protect them. And it's just interesting that your grandfather, who had, you know, so much privilege and protection in so many ways, read the tea leaves and got out, like, really just in the nick of time. I believe it's very rare, anybody who has read about or studied that period of the 30s in Europe hasn't given some thought as to what I would do if I were in those shoes and had to make that decision. And I think for people who were vulnerable, under threat, but were of that upper educated class who really loved and knew the culture that had been created in Germany, the German Jew who adored Goethe, for instance, or Mendelssohn, and just could not conceive that the people who had created this, that I love so much, could then turn and embrace this barbarity. And the quote from Bertolt Brecht nails it so beautifully that the ability to figure out whether you have to get out now or you have another day or two uh, requires that kind of imagination with which you could create an immortal masterpiece. And I, I think that Brecht quote nailed it for me and got me thinking about this thing that, it, as you point out, is, is really a kind of universal theme wondering. We ask ourselves questions, you know, would what would I do if, if I were forced to defend my neighbor down the street? But also, what would I do to protect myself and my family if it meant forsaking this world that I found my place in and contributed so much to? And I can hear that particularly in my grandfather who was so wedded to the German language and never, even as he published bestsellers in the English language, never mastered English. And that must have been just a, just a horrifying uh, break to make and he did it because he knew he had to. We'll be right back. Hey, Sarah, I loved that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was edited so well. 
I think you're so talented. Social media interactions are only positive when you use Zigazoo. Zigazoo is the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. Your kids can upload their content and see what their friends are up to. With Zigazoo, they can create videos, enter to win prizes, and try out the latest dances and trends. There's no commenting, no text messaging, and everything is 100% human moderated. Plus, all community members are real, verified kids just like yours. There are no bots, trolls, or AI. Because Zigazoo is about one thing and one thing only, and that is fun. Try out Zigazoo this spring break and let your kids share your vacation vlogs and best edits with their friends safely. Download the Zigazoo app today. That's Z-I-G-A-Z-O-O. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. Well, I don't know about you, but like I never liked being told, oh, wow, you look so good for your age. Like, why even bother saying that? Why don't you just say you look great at any age, every age? That's what Meaningful Beauty is all about. We create products that make you feel confident in your skin at the age you are now. Meaningful Beauty. Beautiful skin at every age. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. Are you ready to share some joy and celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's has partnered with iHeart for Women Take the Mic, treating you to the most uplifting and empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So grab a handful of that creamy deliciousness, kick back and spread some positivity into the world from smashing glass ceilings to breaking records in sports on stages and at the box office. Women are crushing it in every way imaginable. And with peanut butter M&Ms by your side, relax and keep listening to women take the mic podcasts as you dance your way through inspiring stories, share laughs and savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&Ms and the unstoppable force of women. Happy International Women's Day. Hello, America. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you don't have Consumer Cellular yet, now is the perfect time to switch and save. For a limited time, new customers can get wireless service for as low as $15 a month for your first year. Yep, the same exact nationwide coverage as the leading carriers for $15 a month for an entire year. What are you waiting for? Call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com and use code RADIO15. See ConsumerCellular.com slash FIRSTYEAR15 for promotional details. Kurt and Helen do see the writing on the wall, and once again, they flee Germany. Nico continues to see his father for visits during school breaks, spending stretches of time as a family while Helen and Kurt are living a stable existence in southern France. So their separation is more of a gliding path than a harsh break when finally his father and stepmother leave for New York. Nico is still in boarding school, his final year. Where it really gets harsh is indeed 39, 40. The war begins. Nico is finishing up his final year in boarding school after the invasion of Poland. And it's in 1940 that he's inducted. And 1940 is the year that Kurt and Helen are, fleeing, are leaving Paris and heading for what's become Vichy France. 
And it's in 41 that they actually make their way via Lisbon to New York, which, as it happens, is precisely when my dad is inducted and is uh, conscripted into the Luftwaffe and is part of the invasion of the Soviet Union. Could you define the word Mischling? Yeah, Mischling is a Nazi word for someone who is descended from uh, Jewish descent. It's always so tricky, and I tried to distance myself from words like this by using quotation marks religiously around them whenever they appear in the text. But it's basically, if you're a first-degree Mischling in Nazi terms, you would be what we might call half-Jewish, that is, having a one Jewish parent. And if you're a second-degree Mischling, you would be like my father, as opposed to my grandfather, which is to say, one of your four grandparents is considered by the Nuremberg Laws to be Jewish. Uh, the irony here, of course, is, is that rabbinical law also considers people who are descended of Jews to be Jewish and that there's no converting out of it uh, in the same way that the Nazis felt that way. But be that as it may, that, that was the, the nomenclature, the terminology. And my dad, as a second-degree Michelin, was eligible to serve in the armed forces of the Third Reich. There were about 150,000 of these Jewish soldiers who who served in one capacity or another. And uh, they were under threat. They were constantly changing definitions of who would be eliminated, who would be discriminated against. And there are academic studies that predict that had Hitler won the war, that even these partly Jewish Germans who served in the armed forces of the Reich would have been targeted for elimination afterward. Imagine being part Jewish in a world dominated by Nazi ideology a second-degree, quote-unquote, Mischling, and serving the Third Reich. What parts of yourself would you have to bury, to put on hold, to decimate? During the war, just after he graduates high school, Nico is drafted into the Luftwaffe. He participates in the invasion of the Soviet Union in 1941, driving a jeep with target maps and reconnaissance photos for a fighter squadron. For a while, he holes up in the Ukraine, but then it begins again, and he's sent into active duty. And in 1944, he's assigned to anti-aircraft battery in the Battle of the Bulge. The following year, he's taken prisoner by American forces and sent to a U.S. POW camp in France. When it's all over, he returns to his mother's home, so estranged from himself that he doesn't simply walk in. He rings the doorbell. This is the history he brings with him to America when Kurt is finally able to send for him. And this is the history he carries as he starts his family and embarks on the American dream. What did you know growing up in Princeton, New Jersey, of your father's history? I knew as a boy that my father had fought in World War II, just as so many fathers of so many of my playmate, friends, had fought in World War II. And I knew all along that he had been on the other side and very quickly knew that he'd been on the wrong side. And he never trimmed or concealed that in any way from me. If you were a boy of 9, 10, 11 years old growing up in central New Jersey in the late 60s, you would play army sometimes. And I would sometimes play army on the wrong side. I was, I was acutely aware of the moral implications of all that would be a long time in setting in with any kind of nuance. 
But no, I did know that. But I also knew that my mother had planted a victory garden growing up in Connecticut. And I knew too that my grandfather had been essentially chased over to the U.S. So there was this vague sense that there had been these two very divergent paths. But for some reason, when I considered my father and grandfather, I never entertained the idea that my grandfather had in any way abandoned my father. And then when I happened upon particularly my Aunt Maria's letters and just some of the resentments that she nurtured for the rest of her life, I get a sense that it was real, that that sense of abandonment was very real for her. And I think in my dad's case, there was so much redemption, there was such a sense of a fresh start that he was able to embrace by emigrating. And when he emigrated, and it was just as uh, the 50s were going to launch that generation of Americans and immigrants on this, this great path of success. And that allowed him to put everything behind. So he wasn't rehearsing these resentments for me. Maria and Nico had very different paths. Many siblings do, but theirs diverge in stark ways, perhaps the starkest of which is that Maria remains in Germany, whereas Nico emigrates to the States. That's so interesting, the way that two people, you know, two siblings coming from the same parents and the same environment, you know, the same childhood, can end up with such different narratives for different reasons. It's always the case with siblings. It's as if they have had different parents in some way, but there's a moment where you write, I never felt like a child raised post-traumatically. And that struck me so hard because there's so much trauma in both your grandfather's story and your father's story. It seems something of a triumph to not have had that trauma extend to you. But it was the turn of phrase, you know, raised post-traumatically, which to me really means that your father and your mother didn't raise you with that being a specter. And that, you know, it's funny because, I mean, this is, this is a podcast called Family Secrets, but this is actually a case where it makes me wonder if Nico had kept that a secret, if he had been deeply ashamed of his service and that shame had caused him to tuck it away, you know, to put it somewhere where his children wouldn't know about it that then you would have been raised post-traumatically, if that makes any sense. It makes all sorts of sense. And one of the things that I came to realize in a very profound way was, the more I thought about it and, and rooted around in my dad's letters, is that he was so forward-looking, and I think to a fault in some ways, but being forward-looking meant that, okay, what can I do now as I go forth with my life to atone in some ways for this chapter, which for, for no fault of my own, I was caught up in. And I, I'm struck anew at how much he was devoted to the cause of peace between the Soviet Union and the U.S. during a time when that wasn't to be taken for granted. And he was obsessively interested in, in the Russian people. He loved reading Nabokov. He participated in exchange programs with Soviet citizens. It was almost as if he needed to get on the ground. You know, here he had been supplying maps and photographs for a Luftwaffe squadron during the invasion of the Soviet Union. And as he hit his late middle age, he was engaging himself with the descendants of these very people. And that's a way of spinning it forward, really, I think, um, rather than wallowing or being shackled by the past. Now, I think part of it was he was 
dropped into a United States in 1948 that was putting the war behind it. I mean, the economy and everybody's orientation was entirely spun forward. And here he's living in suburbia and he has an American wife and three kids and me being the eldest and the only male. I mean, it was face forward boy and embrace this country and, and all these opportunities that are here as he was doing. You know, that's what he modeled for me. And then there's this imposition of our next door neighbor who works for the Boy Scouts of America and is slipping me copies of Boy's Life. And all I want to do is become a member of the Boy Scouts. And my dad has to explain to me that he's not a big fan of the idea of me becoming a member of the Boy Scouts, wearing a uniform and pledging some oath and insignia and secret handshakes or whatever it might be. And and he did. I do remember this, him explaining that, yeah, I was in the Hitler Youth and there's a downside to this. And there was a real sense of, oh, I have a second chance. I've been given the grace of a second chance and I'm going to try to get it right, not just for myself, but for my kids too. We'll be back in a moment with more Family Secrets. Have you heard about the social media platform for kids? It's called Zigazoo. It's a great place where kids like me can come together to make fun videos. Zigazoo is moderated by real, live people who review content before it's posted on the feed. I especially love the dance challenges. So much fun. Oh, and there's no comments or messaging, so you don't get any of that negativity that's all over other social networks. Oh, my friends love it. I love that it's KidSafe COPPA certified. Uh, I don't know what that means. It means it has built-in privacy protections for your online data. Uh, that's great, but I wouldn't be doing Zigazoo if it wasn't fun. She would not be doing it if I didn't think her data was safe. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network. For kids! (laughs) Download the Zigazoo app today. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. Well, I don't know about you, but, like, I never liked being told, oh, wow, you look so good for your age. Like, why even bother saying that? Why don't you just say you look great at any age, every age? That's what Meaningful Beauty is all about. We create products that make you feel confident in your skin at the age you are now. Meaningful Beauty. Beautiful skin at every age. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. Are you ready to share some joy and celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's has partnered with iHeart for Women Take the Mic treating you to the most uplifting and empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&Ms, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So grab a handful of that creamy deliciousness, kick back and spread some positivity into the world from smashing glass ceilings to breaking records in sports on stages and at the box office. Women are crushing it in every way imaginable. And with peanut butter M&Ms by your side, relax and keep listening to women take the mic podcasts as you dance your way through inspiring stories, share laughs and savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&Ms and the unstoppable force of women. Happy International Women's Day. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbionica is your solution to great-tasting, all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or toxins. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. 
Visit Symbionica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbionica.com. C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. Nico is able, for the most part, to put his experiences in the war behind him in part because of the time and place of post-war America, and in part because of his own temperament. I think many of us have a natural set point as either forward-looking or backward-looking. Nico is definitely forward-looking. He isn't forgetting or sloughing off the past as much as he is learning and moving forward from it. In a beautiful passage in Alex's book, he writes... We are raised to regard shame as something to avoid or bury, not to speak about. But shame can be a great, animating, activating force if we let it. All of this is encapsulated in a German word I wouldn't dare try to pronounce because it's about 9,000 syllables long, but I'll ask Alex to share it with us. The word is Vergangenheitsaufarbeitung, which... I'm sorry. Believe me, I've had a chance to to learn how to pronounce (laughs) it with a little bit of grace. Vergangenheit is the past. And Aufarbeitung is literally working something off. So working off the past. And I I, I have to credit Susan Neiman and her remarkable book, Learning from the Germans, for introducing me to a lot of these concepts. There's somebody that Susan's worked closely with, um, a German named Jan-Philipp Winzma, who really came up with this idea that we can take shame and kind of mold it and repurpose it. And I think this is where I tip my hat to the Germans and to modern Germany, because when you look at the ways in the public sphere, the the Nazi catastrophe has been repurposed so it can be a lesson of never forget and never again. There are these memorials, these Gedenkstätte, which are the German word for a place of reflection the ways that the German people engage with their past on a daily basis, and perhaps nothing more profound than these stumbling stones, the Stolpersteine that are embedded in the sidewalks of Berlin and many other German cities to memorialize individuals who were targeted by the Nazis and eliminated by the Nazis. And I I think what shame does, and I watched the Germans over this year spent in Berlin do this, is it, um, okay, this is the past that's been handed down to me. These are things that I'm willing to accept and embrace and and improve upon. We're big on that in the States, certainly, taking our past and trying to perfect the American story, you know, uh, and bend that arc toward justice. But then there are things that that I'm going to reject. And and Susan Neiman in her book makes such a great case of that part of growing up is taking those things from your parents and sifting through them and then deciding what you're going to accept and what you're going to reject. And... The Germans have done this, I think, in a civic way, on a large scale, in this extremely admirable fashion. And I think, and Brian Stevenson has done such good work with this down in Alabama with his project on lynching. And um, we really, if there were a way that we could build a civic culture in the U.S. that allows us to grapple with slavery and Jim Crow in that same way, where there's no debate over it whether this is shameful, we accept that. And unfortunately, where we are in the States right now is there seems to be some lingering debate over what's shameful. 
And th that's the great lesson, I think, in Susan's book, uh, Learning from the Germans. She's braided these two national shames and tried to instruct Americans about it. And the, the proof of how successful she is, I think, and how successful the Germans are is that the German people are appalled when they learn the title of this book that Susan has chosen. But there's something that we Germans have can teach others that's outrageous. You know, we're still humbling ourselves from the way we betrayed humanity during the middle of the 20th century. Yeah, it strikes me almost as our shame is actually the thing that makes us debate whether there's any reason to be ashamed. Yeah, yeah, no, we because we're not accustomed to abasing ourselves before anybody. As a nation, we're not. We're not into that. We ride high and ride astride the rest of the world. And one of the things I took away from here in Germany and talking to Germans, including my, my relatives, was that there's great grace and power and to be embraced in, in the humility of acknowledging that you have something to be ashamed about. You picked up, you know, with your family and you moved to Germany for a year to do the research into your father's past. Was there a moment that you knew this was something that you needed to do and or a series of moments or was it something that you knew for a long time that you would eventually want to really excavate? It was probably a confluence of three things. Um, I watched the magazine I'd worked for for 36 years, so Bleed Staff, and um, became part of that exodus, which was in 2016, which, of course, is the same year that Donald Trump was elected, um, which I think brought into very sharp focus for me that maybe America isn't so exceptional, that maybe there are these parallels to what happened in Germany. But then also, you know, to be perfectly honest, the fact that these ancestors of mine were dead, I think, liberated me in a way. And I still had a cousin and an uncle who were still very invested in that generation. And I knew if I, I could get them on board to share um, archival stuff that they controlled, that I could really do some important work. And they, they both have been so supportive. I'm incredibly grateful to them both. The cousin is in in Munich, and the uncle is, is over a mountain range here in Vermont. And there's a real simple truth in, in archives. I have dealt with archives a great deal in my journalistic career and get more and more comfortable in burying myself in them. But I knew that this had to be more than that, that I had to find living, breathing people too. And I, I was so grateful to find them in my cousin Jan and uh, another cousin, Nico, who's exactly my age. And, has wrestled with some of these things. You know, he's had enormous privilege as a, as a Merck in Germany, but he's also um, has a real conscience and has tried to, to change the world in his own way. And long conversations with him in Berlin. Berlin's a great town for, for long conversations. And it all came together. And I, I also knew that I'd been kind of running from stuff for 36 years. That, um, being a staff writer for Sports Illustrated, during that period I worked there was um, was really a joyride. I mean, there were so many exciting things and I, I knew that there was something in the past to turn back to and take the measure of. And, and I've got to say there was one thing and I heard it in Ariana Neumann's uh, episode with you too. There was this, this moment where she felt she had been given permission by her father to go back and tell his family story. And when my father and I in 1996 took this Danube River cruise, which was really the most we dug into his past and I asked him the, the toughest questions. At one point in a lull in our conversations, he said, maybe you'll write about this. This is huge. 
this idea of permission, not just for writers, but for all of us. We, the survivors, the ancestors, the ones left to tell the story, we long for that elusive permission, that sense that it's really okay. And it's so rare for that permission to literally be granted. This was also true with my guest in season three of this podcast, Ariana Neumann, whose father left her a box after his death, an actual box filled with his story, essentially bequeathing it to her. If you haven't listened to Ariana's episode, I hope you'll go back and find it later. Mm, permission. I took it as that. I took it as permission. And, and of course, the fact that all these letters and my father's denazification questionnaire and his certificate of Aryan ancestry, all this stuff is still sitting around. What is a denazification questionnaire? So in the immediate post-war, um, every German citizen above a certain age was asked to fill out a, a questionnaire with 130-plus questions on it about your past and political and otherwise, as my dad called it. And the important thing was to determine who had actually been a Nazi. And they had five different classifications of how implicated you were. And simply by dint of having been in the armed services, my dad had to fill out the questionnaire. And he had been in the Hitler Youth because everyone at his boarding school had been in the Hitler Youth. And when he studied at the university, there was a German Students' Union that was a Nazi party organization he had to be a part of, too, in order to study. But he had never been a member of the party. And this allowed him to apply for a student visa. And the intercession of my grandfather, who by then was an American citizen in 1948, allowed him to come over to the States to, to do graduate work in chemistry. But yeah, all these documents were still there moldering away. And they called to me, the photographs. My dad was a, you know, he loved technology. His Leica was his favorite little gadget. And his mom would send him film when he was uh, deployed around Europe. We'd take pictures and send them back. And she saved every letter, every photo. And my dad, this is further permission. My dad translated all his letters for my sisters and me before he died. And I think he, he wanted us to know. One of the most difficult things for Alex to process had to do with Nico's letters home describing in detail how well he was eating during his early days in Hitler's army. When the Nazis were in power, the idea was to eat everything in sight. When the Nazis were riding high and they were taking everything they could out of the Ukraine, he and his fellow soldiers, not to say the also civilians back in Germany, were eating just scandalously well. And it was only after I got to, to Berlin and started to read that I realized that this was all part of a genocidal plan to starve the native population. It wasn't just to feed German soldiers. It was also to eliminate Slavs who were subhuman and Jews who were subhuman and, and just decolonize, basically, this swath of Eastern Europe, which would become eventually resettled by German farmers and annexed to the Reich. And to read the history alongside my dad's letters is to just, you know, just to start to cry. Then later, food became scarce, particularly during Nico's time in the American POW camp. I think the enduring part of my dad's wartime experience that we would see was around the dinner table when his appetite would be on display. So when I say I was raised post-traumatically, I suppose that might have been the one exception 
because he did have a relationship with food that made it clear to anyone who really thought about it that there was a time in his life that he didn't have enough. Do you feel that you got to know your father better through the reading of, I mean, you know, sort of this extraordinary body of personal writing that he left behind? Did you feel like you were adding another layer to your understanding of him? Yeah, I think his letters home, they're very practical. I recognize his personality in every single one of them. So I didn't really learn anything new about who he was, but I was able to see, okay, he went through all this and he kept my sisters and me protected from it throughout his life as a, as a father and a husband. And I think that was the revelation to me, was just the length that he went to to make sure that we wouldn't be um, troubled by his own trauma. And he knew how lucky he was to have landed in the U.S., that a father he may have resented for having abandoned him then worked really hard to bring him over and help set him up, which I think squared accounts between him and his father in a way that my Aunt Maria never entirely squared accounts with her father. So yes, I did gain a real appreciation for his the way he ran interference for us. And he was really scrupulous about sharing with us, I, I say this in the book, sharing with us really only the beauty, and you know, whether it was books or art or music. And I I do caricature him a little bit as a as a child and an adolescent, as just this techie who didn't really care the way his sister did, or his father certainly, about art and fine things. But he came around to all that and loved music and loved art and loved the well-written novel. So he, he had plenty to live for and embrace and know that even as he was in these horrific places, that there was something back in Munich that was that was being kind of preserved behind the walls of the house where he had, he had grown up in. And um, I think that's the nexus point between my dad's experience and the experience of so many German Jews for me, because they were every bit as invested in this German culture and, and helped create it. And this, this, was, this was the world that my dad had grown up in, first destroyed by the Nazis on a cultural level, and then was destroyed from the air by the Allies because there really didn't seem to be any other way to bring the Third Reich to heal than to just destroy Germany, full stop. In Alex's treasure trove of letters, there is one Nico wrote to Kurt after visiting Darmstadt, a town where his mother had grown up, shortly after the war had ended. Nico uses arresting language to describe Darmstadt, oozing rubble like thick porridge, ruinous. In the summer of 1995, Nico takes Alex's youngest sister on a cruise through the Mediterranean, where they stop at the scattered ruins of Ephesus. Nico separates himself from the group, takes a seat along this ancient plaza, and begins to weep. It seems that the markers of a civilization laid bare, that rubble, undoes a seam inside of him and opens up his own history. I don't think there's any question that my father's reaction at Ephesus was a flashback. You know, the trip was a a kind of taking stock, a valedictory tour with daughter, and, you know, his mortality very much on his mind. And he and Kathy didn't discuss explicitly the the reason for his breakdown and him revealing all that emotion, but I, I don't think there's any question that it was tying into to Darmstadt. And indeed, the home in which his mother had grown up was, was a ruin. And he describes it in this letter to his father in, in great detail. And 
the pipes clanking on the outside and a bathtub just exposed to the world and his great uncle stooped and ruined and living in a garden shed and these things just don't leave you and he had concealed them all so so well and the last thing i ever said to him before he died where i knew that he was conscious and and processing it was i just told him that your life has been a miracle and it was yes he talked about how he'd escaped death a number of times and there was that of course but really i think the miracle that i was referring to he nodded his assent i think he understood was the way he had reconstituted a life for himself as an immigrant Family Secrets is a production of iHeartMedia. Dylan Fagan and Bethann Macaluso are the executive producers. Andrew Howard is our audio editor. If you have a secret you'd like to share, leave us a voicemail, and your story could appear on an upcoming bonus episode. Our number is 1-888-SECRET-0. That's secret and then the number zero. You can also find us on Instagram at Writer. Facebook at facebook.com slash familysecretspod and Twitter at famsecretspod. And if you want to know about my family's secret that inspired this podcast, check out my New York Times bestselling memoir, Inheritance. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Have you heard about the social media platform for kids? It's called Zigazoo. It's a great place where kids like me can come together to make fun videos. Videos moderated by real people who review content before it's posted to the feed. I love the dance challenges. I love that it's Kids Safe COPPA certified. Uh, I don't know what that means. It means it has built-in privacy protections for your online data. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network. For kids. <laughs> Download the Zigazoo app today. Ready to unlock a world of entertainment? Philips Roku TV has America's favorite TV streaming platform built in. So you can watch live TV, catch every game, discover must-see shows and hit movies, and get all the best streaming apps in one place, like iHeart, for all your favorite music, radio, and podcasts. Watch what you want, when you want. Immerse yourself in entertainment with premium 4K picture and sound for every budget, with sizes for every room. Find your perfect Philips Roku TV today, online or at your local Walmart and Sam's Club. Welcome to the Scene to Scene podcast. I am your host, Valerie Complex. Today, I am chatting with Ji Young Yu. Ji Young stars as co-lead in the six-part limited series, Expats. I think I learn a little bit with every character that I play. I think usually I play a character and it causes enough introspection that I learn something about myself. I honestly can't gush enough about Freaky Tales. I'm so excited to share it with more people. If you like what you hear, be sure to review, like, and subscribe to the Scene to Scene podcast. Are you self-conscious about your smile due to stains? Have you ever wished that you had a whiter and brighter smile? Smile Actives is a safe and affordable alternative to expensive whitening procedures. You simply add Smile Actives gel to your toothpaste every time you brush your teeth, making it the easiest teeth whitening solution out there. In a clinical trial, Smile Actives users reported up to five shades whiter on average, all within seven days. No change to your routine, no extra time. Right now, they are running a buy one, get one offer. 
Hurry to smileactives.com slash iHeart today to receive this special offer with free shipping and handling.